0: And I've titled our message today, Having an Aha Moment with God. Having an Aha Moment with God. Now, most of us may be familiar with that term. What is an Aha Moment? And I'm going to share with you through the scriptures in a moment where I understood God leading us today to understand what is truly an Aha Moment that we as a church, as the body of Christ, need to have in understanding who God is. And Second Kings gives us a great example of the opposite, the antithesis of an aha moment, but rather I would say an Ahaziah moment. Ahab's son, King Ahaziah in Samaria. We're going to define that in just a moment as we read the text together, but let me share with you Webster's definition of what an aha moment actually is. An aha moment would mean a moment of sudden realization, inspiration, insight, recognition, or comprehension. It's almost like all of a sudden you realize when your wife looks at you, you did something wrong, right? We know what that moment's like. All of a sudden we realize what I just said has now gotten me into trouble, right? We can all resonate with what that is. That aha moment where you realize the light bulb just came on and I realize I'm in trouble, right? Or I realize something profound that I never saw before. I've often heard the scripture, people will get excited and they say, Pastor, 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 guess what I read? Guess what I found in the Bible today? Well, I would argue we don't find anything in the Bible. It's always been there. But we have aha moments when we read scripture where all of a sudden, what has always been there jumps off the page at us. And we see it anew as if we have read it for the very first time ever through the lens in the mind of Christ. We come to an aha moment. So I want to share with you today an aha moment that I had in studying, an aha moment that we're going to see together of who God is and just how amazing God is. And we will all walk away, I hope, with a few aha understandings about the Word of God. So let's turn to our our text of Scripture today, and we're going to shorten it, and we're going to read just verse 3. Now, I'm going to walk you through verses 1 through 18 as I explain the text, but together we're going to read verse 3, and I'm going to unpack what is going on here with Ahaziah, Elijah, and what the the angel of the Lord is doing through Elijah to bring Ahaziah to an aha moment, and I'd argue you and I today to an aha moment from the Word of God. Picking up in verse 3 of 2 Kings chapter 1. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, the Tishbite, Arise! Go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, "It is because, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? If you would, join me as we pray over this message today. So, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its timelessness. We thank you for the word of God that transcends culture that transcends our socioeconomic situation, that transcends gender, that transcends every circumstance that we may find ourselves in, the word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The truth is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Father, we pray now that you will use this passage and this time for the edification of your body, the body of Christ. May we understand truly just how wonderful you are. We thank you. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me share with you what's going on and for brevity because what I'm going to unpack under these aha moments you're going to see are going to be some pretty profound things I think that I will share with you. But let me just give you a real quick rundown of King Ahaziah's aha moments and what was going on in his life. In the beginning of the text, as you read through it, if you want to read through it as I'm talking, you'll notice that in verse 1, Ahaziah, he's the son of Ahab, you may recognize that name, one of the most wicked kings that ever was, and his son now is on top of the roof, most think, and he falls through the lattice, or the roof structure that was there, and he injures himself to the point where he is now laid up in bed, and he's wondering whether or not he'll recover from this. Now, in the Samaria area, in Israel, where he is at, you would think that he would be appealing to the true God of Israel. But instead, the scripture tells us that instead of inquiring to Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord God, the God of creation, instead he sends messengers to go to Ekron to find out from Beelzebub whether or not he would be healed. Now, isn't that interesting? He's seeking from advice from people who aren't able to really do the very thing that he needs, but yet he's going to take their advice over the advice of others. So he falls through the roof. Instead of seeking God, he seeks the false gods, the God of the Philistines. It's interesting that in Hebrew, the word Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. The God's real name most likely was Beelzebul, which means Baal the Mighty or Baal the Prince, in which case the writer of Second Kings was ridiculing This God, by calling him Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. There's an interpretation favored by some that Beelzebub, that there were other gods. This is the only time in the Old Testament that we will see that name mentioned here in this text. This word Baal, meaning Lord or Master. It is the name of the Philistine God that is only found here in the New Testament. The God of ekron that's where this God of Beelzebub was, was the northmost of the five major Philistine cities, about 65 kilometers southwest of Samaria, 35 kilometers west of Jerusalem. Baal was the Canaanite fertility god. Each town had its own local expression of Baal. And here Ahaziah, instead of wanting to hear the truth, he attempts to intimidate God's prophet by the name of Elijah. On three different occasions, King Ahaziah would send men. First group of 50 go to, to the prophet, trying to get him to inquire. They approached the prophet very boldly, saying, You will come, for it's the king's orders. And, of course, we know the prophet Elijah speaks and calls out to God, If I'm a man of God, and the entire 50 were consumed. The second 50 go and do the same thing, taking the approach that the king has sent me. You must come. They're consumed. And the third group of 50 go. And, and this commander is a little smarter. He prostrates himself before prophet Elijah. And he says and recognizes that he's a man of God and begs and pleads for mercy upon his life and the life of his 50 men. And it's interesting that the angel of the Lord appears to Elijah here in the story and tells him, do not be afraid, but go with these men and prophesy to Ahaziah and tell him exactly what is going to happen. You see, because Ahaziah thought there was no God in Israel, He's going to come to an understanding of who the real God is. And the prophet Elijah goes to Ahaziah and he prophesies exactly what the angel of the Lord told him. You will surely die because of your actions. Now, it's interesting, the earlier moment that we see that term, you will surely die, takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis, where God told Adam and Eve, you may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you do, surely you will die. You see, Ahaziah doesn't recognize who the true God is, and he's seeking wisdom from people outside of God. So that leads me to what I believe God has impressed upon me today to share with you. I want to share with you some aha moments with God, some takeaways that you and I can leave here with, and instead of having the ahazia moment where we seek answers from someone other than God, let's turn our attention and let's figure out what does God tell us about how we can have the aha moment of realizing who he is, and I'm going to share with you just five. That's all we have time for today, and I hope you got your pencil sharp. We're going to run through these. I'm going to give you references to every single one of them so you can go back and study them for yourself and have that aha moment of what God is telling His people about Himself and our trust we can place in Him. So let's start at the beginning of this. I want to share with you first off the aha of power to overcome. The aha of power to overcome. Now in 1 John chapter 5 in verse 4, You don't have to flip back and forth. If you do, you're going to be exhausted, right? But if you want to write this down, I'm going to share with you the Scripture, and then we're going to look at what it means. How do we know we have this power to overcome? And I'm going to share with you the aha moment that Scripture gives us. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Did you all hear that part? of He overcomes the world. We love the scripture that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. But man, folks, I would argue that we are living in a time right now that the church has been overcome by the world, not of the world. We are overcome by the things in our culture. We are overcome by the things in our jobs. We are overcome by somebody's proclamation of health care and what we need to wear. Whether one mask, two masks, or three, I don't know. Pick the day of the week. Folks, I would argue that in Scripture we know that we serve the God that gives us the ability to be overcomers in this world. How does it start, though? First off, we've got to be born of God. What's that mean? That means we must have the starting point for us where we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, where we have been redeemed and forgiven of our sin, where we accept the fact that we are unrighteous, that only in the blood of Christ can we be righteous. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. When we understand that moment, then we, we are empowered now with this ability to overcome. But bef- with, before that, we have no ability on our own to overcome anything. Doesn't it make sense that if we could overcome it on our own, we would have already done it? Think about that. All the challenges that you have. If you had the ability on your own to overcome it, it would no longer be a challenge because you'd already overcame it. But I'd argue the very thing that we can't overcome is our salvation, our need for it. Our sin can't be sanctified by anything short of the blood of Jesus. Folks, that's the beginning point, this aha moment that we have, where the power comes from. First John 5 tells us in verse 4. But he goes on to say this, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The faith that we have in God, not the God of Ekron, not the God of the Philistines, not the God of your 401k, not the God of your employment, not the God of your social status. But Christ Jesus has given us the ability to overcome. Why are we bound by fear if we truly believe what we say we believe? Folks, I am burdened, and I believe this wholeheartedly. there's There's such a small percentage of Christians that are living their life like they believe what they say they believe. Because, man, the world has got a strangled hold on the church right now. And I'm not saying be unsafe. I'm not saying be unhealthy. I'm not saying don't take precautions. But, folks, we serve a God who is an overcomer, who rose from the dead. Who did something that no other prophet, no other false religion, no one else has done but Jesus. The tomb is empty. That's the God who has given you and I the power to be an overcomer through faith in Christ Jesus. Number two, we've been born by faith. He tells us that clearly. Number three, we come to that by believing. Born of God. Born by faith. And we begin by believing. Being comes by believing the faith that we have to believe that God has given us this ability. As Jesus in Acts chapter one records for us in verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria and the utter ends of the earth. Jesus is telling us about this empowerment, this ability that we have that 1 John 5 is talking to us about, that we can have assurance that we are overcomers in this world. As the 23rd Psalm reminds us, not only in this world, but in the world to come, he is our preserver, our protector, our provider. But we're also being guarded by God. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, here's what the prophet Isaiah would say Fear not, for I am with you. This is God speaking to him. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Folks, that's the God we serve. Why are we seeking elsewhere for this power? To overcome. I would argue we are, if we're being honest about it. We're not turning to God first. We're running to our own Ekron, our own God of the Philistines, looking for answers from someone else that we think is going to give us a prescription for what we need to be whole and healthy. I would argue it need not be that way. Amen. We need to turn to God But not only being guarded by God, but being able comes by God. Our ability. Here's what the prophet Ezekiel records for us in Ezekiel 36, 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, folks, don't throw that out because it's Old Testament. That's the Spirit of God. Look what the promise was given there. That I will put my Spirit within you. What did I just share? Jesus said in Acts 1.8. Who's in us now? The Spirit of God. Receipt in full for those in Christ Jesus. I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't it interesting? Adrian Rogers would share with us that you know in Christian life, we can sin all we want to. And here's how he would end that statement. He would often go on to say, the fact is, in Christ Jesus, I don't want to sin anymore. He's fixed my wanter to borrow his terminology. You see, in Christ, this aha moment we have of the power to overcome as he has placed his spirit within us that gives us the ability to endure. The want to is being fixed now by his righteous hand that keeps us. But not only do we see the aha of the power to overcome, I want to share with you the aha of provision that God gives us in this life to overcome. The aha of provision. I'm going to share with you two primary verses in Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 17, and Matthew 6, 26 through 34. The aha of provision. Now we think by our own ability that we provide, we make a way, and by my own bootstraps, I'm going to pull myself up. We've heard that, haven't we? Well, if I don't earn it, ain't nobody else going to give it to me. If I don't do it, no one else is going to provide it. But should that be how we, the Christian, look at life? I would argue every good gift comes from heaven above. Every good gift comes from God. No matter what you and I think is good, no matter what you think we were able to do, I would argue none of you worked this week because you were able. I would argue that if you're in Christ Jesus, you worked this week because he made you able to do what you've done. He's gifted you with the job you have that you may not like, but he's still providing for you. Amen. He's given you the physical health, perhaps, to do the very things that you didn't think you could do. Matter of fact, you woke up not feeling like you could do it today, but he sustained you through it. He leadeth me by green pastures. Lead me lay down in green pastures. Leads me by still waters. God gives us the ability to do those things. Number one, let me share with you what Deuteronomy shares with us. And I think this is one of the number one things plaguing the church today. Bear with me. I'm not angry, I promise. I love all of you. Here's what God's word says in Deuteronomy. Right? Yes, we're in Christ. We're in the, 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 the age of grace. We're under grace not by the law. But if we miss this, we will miss what Jesus was telling us in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 11:13 through 17. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give you rain for your land in its season. In the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain, in your wine, and your oil. And y'all, I'm a Baptist, but the word says wine here, okay? I can't omit that. It don't say grape juice. Verse 15. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Right off the bat, we see here, church, that obedience comes before blessings. Obedience comes before blessings. Oh, how we say we love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. But we disobey the very teachings of Scripture. We disobey the things that God has ordained through His church, through the body of Christ, that we are to do to keep us healthy, to make sure that God is able to provide for us. But we disobey. I would argue obedience comes before blessing. And man, we despise this word in our culture today. And I would argue I am seeing this, this disobedience in the life of, of, of church folks that profess to know Jesus, that swear up and down, I love Jesus with all I got. And we don't even recognize the disobedience that we're doing when we fail to keep his word, when we choose to follow our own lifestyles of living, because that's what I want. We're so plagued today by consumerism in the church, even the righteous think they're not affected by it, but then they are, and they go out seeking somewhere else, because I just kind of feel like it. Folks, I'm seeing it happening in the church today. We don't obey the very thing we say we follow. We're disobedient to those things. We say because... Well, I just feel like I need to go somewhere else. Let me remind you, Adrian Rogers, he's full of of quotes, little maxims and little whips. He says this, he says, the feelings of a man are his shallowest parts. The work of salvation is God's deepest work. God will not do his deepest work in the shallowest parts of man. Don't trust your feelings. Obey scripture. Even when it don't feel like it, we still obey. Blessings come before obedience has to be there before blessings come. Number two, God is the source of the provision. Notice in this text in Deuteronomy, the rain, the wine, the oil, the provision we need for substance. Who provides it? God does. Now, I I promise you there are scientists today trying to figure out how to control the weather. How do we make it rain in the Sahara Desert? How do we do things to control the climate? I promise you there are scientists today working on that issue, trying to make it snow, right? that makes some of y'all happy, but folks, the snow can go away and never come again, right? We're ready for the spring, flip-flops and shorts, here we go, right? But there are people that are wanting that. God is the source of our provision. God makes it rain, and he makes it rain on the wicked and the righteous. You ever wonder why a wicked person prospers? You see, but don't we both share in the blessings when it rains? Mm, What a truth that we have there. Thirdly, God is the source of all abundance. Not only the provision, but the abundance. He goes on in Deuteronomy in verse 15 of chapter 11 to talk about the livestock. He says, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. All right, so there's a vegetarian quote for you right there. All right, feed the livestock, and then you shall eat and be full. It's in Scripture. All right, don't blame me. But God cares enough to provide for all of our needs. He is the source of abundance if we follow him. But here's the last part of that Deuteronomy passage. Guard the provision that's been entrusted to us. Why do I say guard it? Here's what he goes on to say in verse 16 through 17. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods. And worship them. What did Ahaziah want? He didn't want to go to God for the answer of truth. He wanted some other little G God to provide an answer that he wanted to hear. I just love the way that guy talks. I just it just makes me feel so good when I leave there. I heard one pastor talk about say it this way one time. I don't know if pastor is the right term, but we'll call him that out of out of, out of humility. He says, the world is so full of hurt, the least I can do is help my people feel better when they leave church. Now, there may be some truth in that as long as we're feeling better because Scripture says, thus saith the Lord, and we take our hope and faith in salvation, not in what often we want in the prosperity gospel. Deuteronomy says, take care lest your heart be deceived and turn aside and serve every other God and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. And the land you will yield no fruit. And you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Folks, we've got to guard the very thing that God has given us. His word locked away in our heart that we may live by it and seek it daily. May we turn to the aha of God's provision instead of the ahazia's God of getting his ears tickled by hearing the things he wanted to hear. God is the God of provisions. Here's how Jesus would say it. We'll reign it back into New Testament and the words of Christ himself. Matthew six thirty four. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The aha provision, folks. If God cares for the lilies of the field and the sparrows, and the birds and the fox that have no den, no provision, they don't put up like we do. How much more will the God of creation care for you and me? How much more will He provide for our need? I didn't say our wants. Sometimes He gives us the desires of our heart, too, doesn't He? Isn't that interesting how that happens? But God is the God of provision. Let me share with you the third aha moment that we see from Scripture that we can take and hold stock into. The aha of God's protection upon you and I. The aha of God's protection. Number one, Psalms 91, 9 through 10, tell us about God being a refuge. These are words that we can associate with the God we serve. Number one, a refuge. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, and no plague come near your tent. Folks, that's, that's the protection that Scripture tells us about the God we serve. No plague will come near your tent. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. Our God is a God of refuge. I would argue this place that we come to is a refuge for us to be able to escape the things of this world and come into the very presence of God's people and the worship of God Almighty. Number two, though, the Scriptures refer to God's protection as that of a shield. In Proverbs 30, verse 5, we see this. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. So we see a refuge, we see a shield. But he goes on to tell us a little bit more in a book that you may not read from very often. A guy by the name of Nahum. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 7, shares this about the Lord. He calls the Lord A stronghold. Now, a stronghold can be defined by something not easily overcome, something impenetrable. You ever remember growing up and hearing stories about Fort Knox and all the gold stored in Fort Knox and how it was the most secure facility in the world, and no one would ever break into Fort Knox. You might rob Wells Fargo, but you won't ever get into Fort Knox. You see, it was a stronghold for the nation's gold reserves. Nahum says that in the Lord, let me read it for you, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Folks, that's the God that we serve. We who take refuge in him. Our God is a stronghold in our day of trouble. And Isaiah would close us out on this understanding of protection in Isaiah 43 two, And he would share that God himself is The protector. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. Does the name Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come to mind here? Who were thrown into the fiery furnace because they refused to worship a false god. And inside there, the guards were taking them up to throw them into this fire that burned ten times hotter. The guards themselves were consumed because the fire was so hot. And when they looked in, what did they see? In the fire, there were four there, not three. The Spirit of God. Many say Christ himself was amidst those three who worshipped him. I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. They came out of that inferno unscathed, not a hair on their head, none of their clothes, singed at all. No smell of smoke and fire. Folks, I don't know about y'all, but I can't sit around a campfire and go home and not smell like fire. And it didn't even touch me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who served the true God, Yahweh Elohim, came out of the fire untouched. There's your evidence. There's your proof that the word of God is true. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Notice it doesn't say you won't walk through fire. Church, it says when you go through it. There's going to be fire. There's going to be persecution. There are going to be things in life that stretch us to our core. Remember, rubber band serves no purpose unless it's being stretched around the very thing that it's intended for. Folks, you and I have the protection of God. He is a refuge. He is our shield. He is our stronghold. And he is our protector. A vaccine is not your protector as good as it might be. A mask isn't your protector as good as it might be. Your retirement account and your medical insurance isn't your protector as good as they may be, as necessary as it may be in the world we live. God is our protector. God is our ultimate source of all protection. Number 4 though. Let me share with you a fourth aha moment we can take from scripture. The aha of healing. The aha of healing. Now, we have a prayer meeting, and, and from time to time, we, we lay hands on folks because Scripture tells us to do this. Let me share with you James 5, 14 and 15, of what Scripture says is required when there's sickness amongst the body. Sickness amongst the body. <clears throat> when sickness comes, we're not to fear when it happens. We know it's going to happen. That's why it's being addressed here in James 5.14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayers of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, isn't it interesting, the protocols that are in Scripture for us, The protocols don't tell us to go into self-isolation and quarantine, even though that could be helpful from a time. We see Israel was told when leprosy was to break out that there was a quarantine to take in place to keep the people safe. But the point is our faith is to call those when they are sick, to call the elders of the church. Let them pray over them. Isn't that good? There's a relational element here of bringing healing amongst the body of Christ, by those who lead the body of Christ, by the episcopos or the overseer, the bishop that governs and leads the church, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Here's what Spurgeon says about this issue. During Spurgeon's time, there was a, a great outbreak of cholera, and many were worked up in a frenzy. I would argue that time mirrors what we've been dealing with for the last year and a half. And here's Spurgeon's Christian take on life and cholera and all the things that were going on in his world. He says the following, fear to die, thank God I do not. The cholera may come again next summer, pray it may not, but if it does, it matters not to me. I will toil and visit the sick by night and by day until I drop. And if it takes me, sudden death is sudden glory. Ain't that good? I mean, do you see the perspective that Spurgeon shares with you and I? If it takes me, then sudden death be sudden glory. What a wonderful understanding of the healing of God's power. Not in this earthly fleshly body as we often want the healing of that. Can it be so often that we want the body so healed that we're willing to give up the blessing of being in the presence of Almighty God? We're wanting to hold on to what we know we can control and the very thing that is, is the most real to us in this present life because we have yet to fully be able to grasp the treasures of eternity, what it means to be in the presence of my Savior who welcomes me at the gates by saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over these things. I'll make you faithful over many more, right? Right? Is it, could it be that that's where our fear is? That we have yet to really fully grasp the truth of what Scripture tells us about our eternal life. And we're afraid to give up what we know. The aha of healing. Faith heals us according to this verse of Scripture, faith forgives us according to this verse of Scripture, and faith saves us according to this verse. Doesn't mean everyone will be saved from their physical ailment. But notice at the end of that verse in verse 15, and the Lord will raise him up. Doesn't say how. Doesn't say whether it's in the resurrection of calling him home to be in Christ, or the resurrection of the last day when our bodies are made new, or a healing from the deathbed where we get up and rise and walk. Unbind him, Jesus said as he called Lazarus out of the tomb. We may never experience that level of healing. To touch his garment and notice power has left him and a woman is now healed because of her faith. We may die in our infirmity, but the Lord will raise us up because our faith heals, our faith forgives, our faith saves when sickness comes. It is truth in the scriptures. But part five of this message, and we'll close with this. Let me share with you the aha of peace that we can have through Christ. In James chapter 4, verse 8, James tells us and reminds us the very thing Deuteronomy said. If you do this, if you keep my commands. And James uses the word, draw near. In James 4, 8, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I heard it said this way, every man is as close to God as he wants to be. Think about that for a minute. Let's sink in. Every man, every woman, every teenager, every child is as close to God as you want to be. That's deep, isn't it? Problem is sometimes our water's broke. We want other things. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Notice he says first to draw near. Secondly, he says to cleanse our hands. Now, if you were an Israelite, you would have understood the cleaning of your hands, the washing of the outer body was ceremonial. James is reminding us that we're to be pure in our actions and our motives and what we do to cleanse ourselves, not by just the water that's a whitewashed tomb where we're still filthy on the inside, but to cleanse ourselves from the cleansing that Christ brings. For as though my sin be as red as scarlet, it has been washed white as wool. I mean, what an understanding we have. The first miracle that Jesus performed in the Gospel of John, Jesus turns this water that was being used for the, those at the wedding banquet to wash their hands before they went inside. And those jars that were out there had the water in it that they would dip their hands in, perhaps pour it over and wash their hands. What does Jesus do? He takes this, what I've called before, dirty water. They fill the vessels back up. And he turns what was dirty and filthy into the best they had ever tasted. Isn't it amazing God does the same thing with our life? He can take what is dirty and uncleansed and he can turn it into the best life we've ever tasted, ever known because of Christ. Folks, it doesn't get any better than that. I'd say instead of waiting for the best to come, let's live the best we can today knowing That God has given us that ability to draw near to him and he will draw near to us. To cleanse our hands through the blood of Christ. To purify our hearts. What drives us to steady our mind on the things of Christ. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And listen to me, church. Man, we study the scriptures till the cows come home. We know all the stories. We have the intellectual understanding and can probably even parse Greek and Hebrew, some of us. But if there's never a transfer from intellect to I know so in my heart, that 18 inches of separation is the stumbling block for so many who are in the church today. We think we know enough. We've arrived at a place. Well, I've done my time, pastor. I've, I've served good enough. It's time for some young bucks to get in there. Folks, if all we are is a bunch of folks full in our head of knowledge and we don't ever begin applying it to our daily life, I would argue it is doing you no good. You are more fit and prepared for the kingdom of hell than you are heaven. We need to take what we understand through our knowledge, our gnosco, our understanding of experienced, experiencing God for ourselves, and turn it into an application. What are we doing for God? And yes, he expects you and me to be working for his kingdom. Not just with your family, not just with your children, not just where you are in life, but he expects us to be serving his body. We're not to be just consuming, but we're to be giving back by serving. That's a commandment for all of us. Not just pastor or the paid staff or the lady or the volunteers that are on the roll. All of us who call Christ our Lord and Savior are expected to serve him in the capacity that he has prepared us for. We need to steady our minds on Christ. And lastly, let me share with you again, and I'll close this with what Jesus himself says. We need to rely upon Jesus. Data is great. Facts are wonderful. Science is good. But, folks, if we are not relying upon our Savior, we have got it wrong. Here's what Jesus said, John fourteen twenty seven. the aha of peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Folks, that's the word of God from God himself. To you and I, the body of Christ. To not be afraid of what tomorrow holds. But to live in the faithful promise that the God of creation is also the God of peace. That has given that to you and I. Here's what Brother Adrian Rogers says. And this will be my last quote for the moment from him. He says this about truth in the church. He says it's better to be divided by truth than to be united by error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts than heals, than falsehood that comforts than kills. It is better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. Deep, isn't it? So let me close our service today by asking you, and all that I've shared with you, and all that Scripture reveals, what is your aha moment in life? Are you trusting God? in all of these areas? Or are we trusting the world? Are we trusting our systems? Are we trusting our science? Take heed of all things, but may we not be an ahazia, but rather have an aha understanding of who God is and his sovereignty over all things.